1: chairs you don't want to talk about chairs
0: my chair broke this week first it started to break and then it broke
1: that's how things go (laughs) first they're tenuous and then they cease to work the
0: situation just deteriorated so quickly i thought i'd have more time to say goodbye and instead like whatever Uh, it is in this chair that makes it like tilt has become like a Buck and Bronco sort of mechanism thing.
1: Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. And my name is Andrew. And we are mourning Andrew's office chair this week.
0: (sighs) Rest in peace for my chair.
1: Rest in pieces in the hallway where the trash gets taken out of. Now I'm back here. Now I'm up here. <laughs> <laughs> Just be careful not that it doesn't flip you forward and you get like a mouthful of microphone.
0: I will do my best. I make no promises.
1: Uh, I did start, well, with the help of our good friend Margaret H. Willison, we started a hashtag, a chair for my Andrew, where we are tweeting chairs to Andrew. Now,
0: I'm noticing like a a butt theme, like it's very a very butt centric selection of chairs that you guys have sent me so far. Like, well, that's what whether chairs... whether the chairs are like a pair of hands molded as if they are cupping your butt, but, or and... a pair of chairs
1: that is, have is that like not butt. just what a chair is, Andrew, a thing molded to hold your butt. But I don't want it to be like shaped like a butt. <laughs> Okay. I would like more chairs that have faces on them, please. I started off with a vinyl print of George Clooney's face, Mm -hmm. which seems good. Like, he's a man for all seasons. He'll take care of your butt. And I would like (laughs) to see more of those. So,
0: Yeah, more faces on everything. Like, face chairs, face cake. (laughs) Give it all here.
1: So, we talk about books, usually, not chairs. And this week, I read Toni Morrison's Beloved which mm-hmm. has come up on a number of uh like lists of listener recommended books. So, I decided to dive into that and Andrew, I've read I think I read her first novel Sula in college. Have you read any Toni Morrison?
0: Um I don't think that was her first novel, but I Uh-oh. have not
1: read any Toni Morrison
0: either. What was her I've first done more novel? research on her than than Apparently. you have, I guess. Yeah. Um I know that the oh. Bluest Eye was earlier than Sula. I'm you're sure right, you're right first. Uh yeah, I think that is the first. That was in 1970. Sula was 1973, Song of Solomon was 77, and then Beloved was in 1987. And uh among other, you know, accolades in uh 2006, the New York Times book review named Beloved the best novel of the past 25 years.
1: Well, I think it also won the Pulitzer for fiction.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, that's why <laughs> that's one of the other accolades.
1: Okay, I might. I personally, I might rank the Pulitzer above the book review.
0: But I'm just saying, like that was well, well, well after it was published. Okay, okay, you're okay. You're and like a best point about novel endurance. of the past 25 years. So whatever other 24 books won Pulitzers or whatever book prizes you can win, like they are all worse than Toni Morrison and
1: Beloved. That's okay. I might. Yeah. Okay, sure. So, what else did you learn? What about What now? Because you did. <laughs> <laughs> You have not only done more research, you have formed more opinions on that research. What else did you learn about her?
0: If, like, wanting to be accurate about the facts is an opinion, then yeah, I have a lot of opinions. Have you
1: seen the news (laughs) lately? That's what passes for an opinion these days.
0: Um, All right. She's an African-American novelist, editor, and professor, of course. Uh, She's currently professor emeritus at Princeton, and I think she also has a a chair at Oberlin. I don't know if chair is is the right term but she's uh residency at oberlin college okay. uh there's uh,
1: like a stink about she her alma mater is howard university yes right uh, that was DC. where she
0: went for undergrad
1: and she did teach there for a period of time but then she donated recently she donated her papers to princeton which was she did teach there for like 25 years or yeah, for a long
0: time. And she's still, she's still there. Like technically, I don't, I don't know how often she comes in anymore, but, um, but yeah, she's still got her position as professor emeritus in that, in that, in the African American studies department, I think.
1: So I, I think there is, uh, there has been some hand wringing about her not donating her work to Howard
0: which I think is a historically black college, yes, right? Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, in the and that was, the and that was Capital, mostly the yeah.
0: yeah that was what the the stink was about was like the white colleges have enough stuff like they what? they have had many many opportunities to tell and mistell our story.
1: Yeah, that's exactly. Uh, yeah. Given her given her body of work, that certainly seems like it would benefit howard's collection though. yeah
0: yeah and we can we can talk a little bit more like she has some interesting stuff on feminism that she said but let's let's hit the basic facts first um so she read a lot of austin and tolstoy as a child uh, her parents told her african-american folk tales to help put her in touch with their heritage um they moved up north uh, morrison was born in 1931 i don't know if we mentioned that already but her parents moved up north to escape racism in the south and um she says of her parents Uh, My father was very, very serious in his hatred of white people. What mitigated it was my mother, who was exactly the opposite, who never rejected or accepted anybody based on race or color or religion or any of that. Everybody was an individual whom she approved of or disapproved of based on her perception of them as individuals. My father saw two black men lynched on his street in Cartersville, Georgia, as a child. I think seeing two black businessmen, not vagrants, hanging from trees as a child was traumatic for him. So getting really close to a lot of... A lot of longstanding racial issues in America.
1: Yeah, I, I think we—that's a good uh, open for how the rest of this podcast could go. Yeah, sure. uh, I was watching a brief interview with her, and she's talking about she'd been kind of dancing around what ended up becoming beloved, uh, because even from you know from her own words, like writing about slavery is hard. It it involves dredging up. And diving into a lot of things that you maybe, uh, and I, I say this as a white guy, so I can't even imagine. Um, Yeah, like, just
0: like we're let's say that the one time, and then just yeah. have it be assumed that we're yeah. saying it as white guys the whole rest of <laughs> the, the rest time. of the show.
1: Um, but that you're bringing up things that you've heard of before, or you've read somewhere, or you've thought about before, and every time you think about it again, it it feels worse and worse, and is harder to even put into words. Mm-hmm. Uh and she specifically wanted to write about and we'll get more into this later this uh story about Margaret Garner. Uh, I'll talk more about that when we get into the plot of the book, but it was it was a woman who committed a crime uh, to prevent her children going back into slavery. And to do that, Morrison knew that she had to write a bit more of a a bit more of a political novel, a bit uh dive more explicitly into what was going on in that time period. Right.
0: And she's, I mean, she's written a lot about, I mean, not just, not just things that African-Americans and black people have faced Mm -hmm. like as a, as a people, but also like subdivisions within. Sure. Within there. Because I think, you know, when we talk about black issues or African-American issues, like there's, there's a lot of impulse to like lump, lump everybody together into one big thing. But then um her, latest book which was published in 2015 god help the child um she was talking to uh terry gross at npr about it and um talking about how she wanted to distinguish color from race so um i'm paraphrasing yeah. paraphrasing quotes from her but it's like a black mother has a child and that child is like a much darker black than she is and it's dealing with not not only like society's Re- reactions to different colors and like the privilege that comes with having like lighter grades of skin, but also like that mother's own reaction to her own child. Mm-hmm. That's been like, that's, that's been like forced upon her by the society in which she's been like brought up. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, there's, it's a, there's a character,
1: there's a character in beloved. I uh, talks about being of lighter skin and deliberately marrying a man of darker skin mm-hmm. to make sure that her children are darker.
0: Yeah, she says she was she says to Terry Gross uh, distinguishing color light black in between as the marker for race is really an error. It's socially constructed. It's culturally enforced and it has some advantages for certain people. But this is really skin privilege. The ranking of color in terms of its closeness to white people or white skin people and its devaluation according to how dark one is and the impact that has on people who are dedicated to the privileges of certain levels of skin color. Mm. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, she's she's got a lot of other things to say, and I've got a few other quotes, but let's get into the book, and we'll just, like, try and bring them up organically instead of just... Yeah.
1: Quote, quote, quote. Quote, 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 quote. It's one way to do this podcast, quote, quote, quote. <laughs> uh, so, I'm going to need your help on this episode, Andrew. I told you a little bit before we started. Okay. Because the book... I'm very helpful. I've noticed. I'm uh,
0: extremely helpful. <laughs>
1: Ask me how helpful I am. How helpful are you?
0: I am super helpful. Thank you for asking.
1: Ironically, this conversation has been the least helpful thing you've done on the show. <laughs> uh, so the book is told. Uh, it jumps back and oh, man, forth first, in time.
0: First roadblock.
1: I know. Already. It jumps back and forth in time. Uh, the main character is a woman named Seth or Setha. I'm going to say Setha. Uh, S-E-T-H-E. Okay and we get uh, like a chronological narrative that takes place uh after just after the civil war in Cincinnati, Ohio with her family and then we get repeated flashbacks to uh before the war during slavery uh in the 1850s, 18 uh early 1860s in Kentucky on a plantation named Sweet Home which is where she was where uh her Ste- her mother-in-law and her husband worked and were and were owned, and the escape from that plantation and and those memories, or as the book calls them, re memories. It kind of elides the words memory and remembering in a way that seems just like a little heightened. Uh, they are they are doled out over the course of the book, so I'm I'm gonna try and attempt to work through the primary plot as necessary okay uh to to set us out and then anytime you're asking me like about a character i might have something else to to tell you about
0: okay sure uh, and just to confirm yes yeah, setha appears to be correct or you know close a to canonical
1: pronunciation yeah of the name. yeah
0: so i think we're good
1: so setha lives in cincinnati and she lives uh in this house that they refer to as 124. That's that's the address on its street. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that both that house and the plantation have such specific names. It just helps ground you uh, throughout this book that can easily be very unmoored.
0: I mean, that's typically why people give things names.
1: Well, <laughs> I just, come on. It seems thematically <laughs> interesting the way that, like, she refers to the house as 124, plenty okay. of do. like. do. Okay. You, I don't refer to my house as like its number. I, it's mm-hmm. just my home. Yeah. Okay. Whatever.
0: Okay. okay. No. How no, helpful are ahead. you? No, I'm gonna. I'm super helpful. Super, super helpful. Okay. So, like, she, I just covered for you taking a swig of your drink by yeah. saying how helpful I was again.
1: Oh, God, this is off <laughs> to a roaring start. So she lives there with her mother-in-law, uh, baby Suggs. And her daughter Denver, and her baby Suggs is a great name. It's a pretty good name. Uh, and her two sons Howard, and I think Bugler, Buglar, B-U-G-L-A-R. I'm out of luck. Let's say Bugler. Great. So it's not long into the book that Baby Suggs uh dies. Uh, maybe of old age. Maybe they. Maybe of sickness. The house is haunted, Andrew. So Baby Suggs isn't literally a baby. No, she's okay. the matriarch of the at the beginning of the book. Okay, good, good. Good to know. She uh, dies in this haunted house. Uh Howard and Boogler, who are both thirteen, they beat feet. They're out of there. They mm-hmm. they literally they just run away and never come back and we don't ever see them again. Okay. So it's just Setha and Denver and the house is haunted. By the ghost of, or this, this is this what everyone says: the ghost of Setha's oldest daughter. Uh, she had four kids: the two boys who ran away, uh, this baby, and Denver. Okay. And we were the best name that we have for the baby is beloved because what she did was at the baby's funeral. Uh, The only thing that she could remember that the preacher said was the first two words, dearly beloved. And Mm -hmm. she couldn't afford to get both of those words put on the tombstone. So she picked beloved. So that the
0: baby not have a name or did she just not want to remember the name or what's the reasoning for that?
1: That's not really made explicit. Okay, Uh, I think the baby when it died was just shy of two.
0: Is it like thematically important that the baby doesn't have a name, or is it just...
1: It is It is thematically important. It's thematically important or pl- structurally important that the baby be called Beloved and that we okay. understand from the get-go that its name was Beloved. All right. Um, and there's a couple early lines talking about this ghost where, like, at first I don't know if I'm supposed to take the book at face value that this house is haunted. Mm-hmm. But then even in, like, the first... Fourth or fifth page, furniture is moving around, like a the sideboard took a step forward, but nothing else did. And then Denver and Setha have an open discussion about how that's a that's the ghost of her baby that died, that is moving that furniture around. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the world, and and everyone in the town kind of avoids this house and avoids these people.
0: So you, as the reader, are left to assume that this ghost is actually a thing
1: yes function okay All it's right. if anything it's not a novel where that isn't possible and we're waiting for the explanation okay sure yeah uh at one point setha even says not a house in the country ain't packed to its rafters with some dead negro's grief we lucky this ghost is a baby
0: I guess, yeah. If you want to, if you're going to have a ghost, I guess you want it to be a baby because it wouldn't be big enough to like really like reach for knives on the counter or yeah.
1: I mean, it's still breaking stuff and like throwing furniture around.
0: But that's, you know, if again, like if you're going to, if you're going to pick a ghost and on the one hand you have like an Amityville horror ghost and on the other one you have like a baby who's going to throw your stuff around. I think I would pick the baby.
1: Honestly, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll talk about that. So, Denver, who is uh, eighteen by the time the the main events of the novel start, because we skip ahead after Baby Suggs dies, she has never left the house. Mm-hmm. She left the house once as a young, as a young girl to go to this school, and she had a good time. But everyone in town thought that she was like really different. And didn't like her. And uh, one kid told her something about her mom that you don't find out about until later in the book that made her like deaf for a couple years and didn't want to leave the house. And so she literally does not leave the property and hasn't for over 10 years.
0: Because of the thing that she heard about her mom? Yes. Okay.
1: Now, what you need to know about Setha's background, and this is kind of where the book starts jumping around, and so I'm just going to kind of paraphrase her background as best I can. Okay. When they were all on Sweet Home, um, she was pregnant with Denver, had the two older boys and the baby who we will call Beloved, and they were planning an escape from Sweet Home. They previously had a real sweet deal where Mr. and Mrs. Garner treated their slaves pretty well, and didn't, like, whip them and never beat them and let them use guns and let them read. And it was, it's that kind of, like, I guess this is the best version of slavery, but it's still slavery, so it's not good. Yeah, I mean,
0: yeah, saying saying the best version of slavery is, like, when you let your slaves in the house or or whatever, like, it's still super gross. So I have you mentioned yet when this book is happening? Because I guess I was kind of assuming it was... It was like post Civil War, but if slavery is still a thing, then that's that's not true, right?
1: Uh, not very post. I think the 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 kids are born before the Civil War, and okay. the book takes place afterwards.
0: But this this particular time jump is still
1: before. Uh, back in the back when they're on Sweet Home, yes. Okay, great. Um, so they have the quote unquote sweet deal at Sweet Home, right? Where where they're barely afforded like basic human rights
0: and stuff. Yeah, it sounds great.
1: Yeah, and one of the tricks is like it's Baby Suggs gets her freedom because her son Hal, who is Denver's mom and beloved uh Denver's dad and beloved's dad, mm-hmm. uh he spends every Sunday like going and working off the plantation to like pay her way out. And so she gets like 5 years of her own freedom in her 60s. But they stage an escape after Mr. Garner dies, and this guy they refer to as the school teacher comes in and starts actually treating them like property. Great. And it gets really bad for them. So they plan an escape. At this point, Setha is pregnant with Denver, and a bunch of the pupils and other white boys from the farm, they, they I think, it, based on the language, they rape her. At the very least, they take, like, she says they took her milk. Like, they empty her breasts okay uh and this this whole motherhood thing is like that's what she's got going on and they take it from her and then when how
0: she- um how do you have a sense of how old she is at this point i imagine that it's not that she must be like old enough to bear children but that could still be like 14 15 younger <sighs> even maybe. well
1: this would be her fourth child
0: I, I would have, I would say, like mathematically, she could be twenty, early twenties, mid twenties. It could really be anywhere in there. Anyway, I, I, if I'm sidetracking you from stuff that's important, I'm just that's, trying to get a better sense of like the characters and the time that this is happening in, and just trying to get get an idea of the backdrop.
1: No, that's that's fair. Yeah. Um. So they take her milk, and when she tells on them, she is then whipped for it, and this all precedes her then. Escaping. There's an escape plan. She sends her kids ahead of her. Her husband, Hal, is nowhere to be seen, even though he was supposed to be part of the plan. Mm -hmm. And so she sends her three kids ahead and then is later discovered on her own by a young white woman while she's, like, wandering through the woods uh, who helps her with the delivery of Denver. Okay. And then... She wa- she finally, like, after a long journey, makes it to Cincinnati where Baby Suggs is. And her husband, Hal, never shows up. Uh, and you later learn that he saw what happened to her with the boys who took advantage of her, and that like broke him and he couldn't he couldn't face it. And so whatever happened to him, he he was never gonna come back. Yeah. So this is all to say that that period of time in her with her in Cincinnati lasted a cool 28 days before the incident that inspired this whole book happened and that is the incident of uh Margaret Garner and that's reenacted in this book where some uh the school teacher and some other men show up enacting the uh like the, the fugitive slave act of 1850 where you could go into free states and get slaves who had run away. Right. And and those states were expected to enact that law. And rather than let her children be taken back into slavery, uh, she attempts to kill them.
0: Man, like whenever I hear about sort of those those especially in the years like directly leading up to the Civil War, the kind of piecemeal stuff that that people must have done to like appease Southerners, you know, yeah. with, with with respect to lawmaking and stuff. Like when I hear that, I completely get why people don't want to wait on like incremental stuff. Because like on the one hand, like in- incremental change is easier to enact, but yes. on the other hand, like the the people whose lives are being changed. Have to keep like waiting for stuff that should really just be there. It's like there's there's no easier way I think to explain that to somebody than to tell them about like like all of that like the Jim Crow stuff like the pre Civil War like the the what was the act that you just mentioned the name of it
1: well this is the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 which right. is two years prior to Uncle Tom's Cabin and yeah. I think that is widely that act is cited as one of the reasons why Stowe wrote that novel when she wrote it Mm -hmm. Um, and people in that, in that era. And some folks have had a a similar response to beloved that they thought that Stowe was sensationalizing slavery. Um, Yeah, And, you know, we saw like 12 years a slave is, is a similar story. There's like a nugget of, of this unbelievably true thing that happened that, to a modern eye allows like takes you back to like look at this stuff that we I can't even imagine was like real mm-hmm. um, and then Dred Scott comes a couple years later which again like that's a precursor to the Civil War because the the Supreme Court upheld slavery in that instance and all the yeah. abolition states are like are you kidding me what are we doing here Uh, so. Yeah, I've just been like thinking about that kind of stuff because
0: we've both been listening to Hamilton lately. Yep, and then uh-huh. you go in, and then you inevitably go on Wikipedia and read about Hamilton and Washington and everybody. And they were all like anti slavery, but that all it kept getting backburned because they kept needing to broker deals with like the Jeffersonians and then later just other people. And, and <sighs> stuff kept getting pushed back and pushed back. And
1: yeah, yeah. And, and in light of, of, current events and the current discourse on reparations and what that means. And even to like a much more abstract sense, like I was editing our January bonus episode and thinking about like exploitation of people and people as property or not. and, And what are we willing to, to kind of shove away into a basement and, and actually the theme of people versus property in this book Uh, There's a scene far later at Sweet Home where uh, I believe it's Setha overhears the school teacher teaching his pupils how to like write down information on the slaves and put them in columns of like human characteristics and animal characteristics. Mm -hmm. I, I guess for some sort of like inventory, which is awful. Uh, but at a like also setha has to ask about the word characteristic because she's not educated enough to know about it. So like to be reduced to property and not even have the literacy to understand how it's being done because you have not been afforded that opportunity. Right. Is, ugh, it's like heartbreaking. Um, And then that reminded me of this other, this other incident in the late 1800s, Uh, called the Zong Massacre. Have you ever heard about that, Andrew? No. Uh, These slave traders uh, almost basically claimed insurance fraud by uh, ditching a bunch of slaves in the Atlantic Ocean and claiming that it was because they didn't have enough water for their crew or their cargo, and cargo being people. Right, Um, of course. And so, like... Of course. That, the way that that... Naturally. ...case ended up going... uh, the argument against it is that like those cargo were actually people. So like, this doesn't hold up. You committed murder, like stop it. Um, And the central incident of this book that the, the Margaret Garner story that I talked about that they, they couldn't decide whether or not to try her for murder or for destruction of property. (sighs) Right. Yeah. Like that's a big, part of that story and it's interesting i did not know that tony morrison went on to write a libretto for an opera about this story in 2005 like the
0: mid 2000s right yeah
1: um it's just interesting that that because that inspired this book that when somebody wanted to make an opera about that story that she was ready to work on it uh so anyway sweet home's not great uh of course not setha ends up killing her oldest daughter uh, and getting being stopped before anything else happens, and that's the thing that a kid tells Denver that causes her deafness. But anyway, that's like that is the backdrop for all the stuff that happens in this book. Okay, there's so, other stuff in the past, but that's it.
0: Okay, yeah, because I, I was going to ask, like, is the is the structure of this book that you're constantly jumping back and forth, yes. or? Okay, cool. So you get, I I assume you get vital moments of context, like after something happens in the present day that like fills in future things or goes back and fills in past things.
1: What the main, the main delivery system for how this works is that little ways into the book, a guy named Paul D shows up and he was a slave at Sweet Home with Setha and Baby Suggs and, and Hal, and he has kind of been on the run and been in and out of prison and, he decides to move in with Setha. His first day there, he banishes the ghost effectively. Uh, <laughs> he starts. He, he and Setha start getting a little physical in the house. And, what does um, he
0: do to ban- Wait, what does he do to banish the ghost? Don't just okay. tell me that he banishes okay. the ghost. Hold
1: on, I gotta find does, it. Does he
0: like bust it? Like, what is he what does he do? <laughs>
1: uh so let me let me read it to you. Now, this is after he's asking Setha about her daughter denver and there's this like little anecdote about how denver's upset that he, she's watching her mom like react to a man in a way that's like sheepish when her mom after the ghost threw their dog against the wall and like <laughs> dislocated its eyes man her mom hit Whoa, the dog what? her mom hit the dog in the head with a hammer to like put its head back in order and the dog was like never quite the same but it was alive <laughs>
0: can't imagine. Like, I didn't even know that the eyes were a thing that you could dislocate. <laughs>
1: it's pretty messed up. Uh, so Paul D is, like, hanging out, and he can feel that the house is, like, not happy with him there. Mm-hmm. And that the floorboards start shaking, and the house is getting upset. He says uh, this, like, this table comes flying at him. And he grabs the table leg and he says, God damn it, hush up, leave the place alone, get the hell out. And he bashes the table and he says, you want to fight? Come on, God damn it, she got enough without you, she got enough. And then the house just goes quiet.
0: I like that he makes the ghost feel bad and that's how (laughs) he
1: gets rid of it.
0: Like She's got enough on her plate. Like Stop haunting her.
1: Yep. And and this is after 18 years of her being a pariah. Man,
0: we got to tell this to those paranormal activity people. Like, get just, them in there. Just tell the ghost, like, what else you've got going on. And they'll be like, well, man, I'm sorry. I didn't know that you had other stuff happening.
1: And, and I'll say at this point, we don't know all about what that other stuff is. Like, th- This is earlier in the book before the book has told us what the incident was. Kind of like what you were saying. The memories come up as is useful to the novel. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to to talk about this kind of 19th century Medea story because it's what inspired the novel. So then Paul D. is shacking up with this family and he's like trying to make a thing happen. He's been wandering around. He's finally ready to to sit for a bit. Uh, Denver's excited for her mom because well, she's a little excited. She's also a little upset about being kind of made the third wheel now. Yeah. They go to a carnival. They're having a good time. This is the first time that Denver's been out of the house in ages, and they come back, and they find a young woman on their porch, and her, they make a bunch of remarks about how her skin, her, like her hands, don't have any lines on them, almost like she hasn't done any work. Okay. Uh, she's got a couple little marks on her forehead, but otherwise is remarkably unblemished. I, um,
0: I assume this is a black girl. Yes, yes, okay.
1: The, uh, this it, almost this entire community is black. It's it's sectioned off um, just outside of the main town of Cincinnati. okay And it's worth noting that they got the property that they're living in. Baby Suggs got it from the Bodwins or the Bodwins who are a white family that try to do right at in abolitionist Ohio um, and gave this property to that family after you know hiring some people. So this girl says that her name is Beloved and starts living with them. And she doesn't really – isn't really able to say where she came from. She said that she crossed a bridge and was in some dark places. Uh,
0: She came over from Kentucky.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) effectively. Uh, And so we don't know – what her deal is. She sets Paul D kind of on edge. Denver's fascinated by her, but doesn't quite know what to do with her. And it's strongly implied early on that maybe she is the ghost all grown up. Okay. And there, I, I will say, like, the book and your experience reading the book hinges on whether or not you believe that.
0: I mean, I guess the book has already set us up to believe that a ghost is a thing in the first place. So making a leap to a ghost being a person again is not so huge after that. But no, yeah, I, don't, I don't know if that's what I don't know if that's what Morrison wants me to do or if that's just what I'm doing.
1: Exactly. I, and I certainly while reading the book, uh felt very strongly. Yeah, that's exactly what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> this is a this is a ghost lady who is here to mess some stuff up. Mm-hmm. Um especially at one point Denver notes that she has like a scar on her throat and the part of the incident that happened is that Seth had killed her daughter by with a handsaw to her throat. So like that seems to jive, uh beloved ask setha at 1.0 point about earrings that she had that her that the her slave owner mistress gave her when she got married uh, mm-hmm. as a gift and no one should have known about that it's like that kind of thing it's it's unclear as to maybe she's just asking an a, a an informed question or like a guessing question that's if she's as-
0: guessing eerily Correctly about some stuff that only this ghost
1: baby would know. Yeah, precisely. All right. So it's it's there's a couple. All right, ghost baby, (laughs) exactly. Uh, so this is not going well for Paul D. Uh, he has gone through a lot. His his whole background is like really harrowing and could be its own story, like its own novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not about him, so I won't. I won't bother. Just it's it's a cool story. If you go read this book, which you should, check it out. He is not having a good time with Beloved in the house because now Beloved is dominating Setha's time and energy, and Setha has not quite vocalized that she thinks it maybe is Beloved, or her daughter, but she's really enjoying having this person in her house.
0: And he's just scared because he's the one who made the ghost
1: mad in the first place. Yeah, right. uh, and he doesn't necessarily think it's a ghost, but he is not okay with this. Cause they don't know where she came from. She can't even explain how she had shoes on. Like, what is the deal?
0: That is a little suspect.
1: Unless yeah. she is just scamming them. Yeah. He gets like what he calls, I think the house fits where <laughs> he doesn't want to stay in the house anymore. And it, there's a, there's like this interesting little paragraph about, uh, that seems to jive with like the modern narrative of um, single parenthood and, and kind of men having trouble sticking around and itinerant fathers and whatnot.
0: Yeah. That whole, that's very fraught.
1: Yeah, it is. And, and he, it starts as this kind of like, it happens when you, when you can't handle the woman that you're with and you, you can't wrestle that with who you feel that you are, but this feels more supernatural and he just like, cannot feel comfortable in any part of the house first he stops sleeping in the bed with setha then he stops sleeping on the couch and then he like moves out to like the ice box shed basically and when he's out there beloved starts visiting him and sleeping with him
0: well like okay sleeping with him or sleeping with no
1: him? sleeping with him
0: like full contacts
1: yes sleeping with him? full okay. contact sports sleeping with him all right uh, it's really like he's not. That's weird. It's super weird. And it, I like, hey, like
0: maybe I'm like a grown-up corporeal ghost baby. Like, let's get freaky. And they don't like. How does that pitch go? They <laughs> don't
1: talk about it. She just comes in and does it to him. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's real. And like, he- I mean, it doesn't put him in a good light either. But it's it's meant to be of a of a forced if that makes sense. I suppose, yeah. So, his plan to fix that, initially, he thinks maybe he should tell Seth about it. And in the moment, he decides not to tell her. Instead, he says, "Let's get pregnant." Like, that's huh. his plan. All right. And uh, there's some lines about him doing that to like prove his manhood and cl- and stake his claim. And she's a little dubious because she's older than she should be for child-rearing right. safely at this point. And she's not sure that she, even at this point, wants to like have a young child to care for. She- like, and
0: then she's had a lot of bad experiences because she had a baby who died, and then she had two older sons who run off.
1: Yes, and it's strongly implied that they run-off because she killed one of her kids and they Oh boy oh boy oh boy oh boy and they may or, you know they were old enough to understand what people might be talking about mm-hmm. uh now setha does have a job that she goes to every day but denver never leaves the house and beloved never leaves the house uh, occasionally they'll go off into the woods but that's like not very often uh so paul d's plan maybe would go forward if a guy named stamp paid also one of the best names in the book. Uh, I don't know. And, and, and it's. I say it's one of the best names in the book just because it's utterly memorable and so specific. But it, it probably comes from a bad place. So, But Stampede wants Paul D. to know the truth. And Paul D. does not know about the incident and does not know that uh, Setha went to jail for what she did. Okay. Let alone what she did in the first place mm-hmm. and um Paul D can't hang with that, and he moves out, and it's like this really oh, uh, it's like this really heartbreaking gesture where he tells her to like save his food for later. he's just gotta go out for a bit, and there's this moment in her head where she's like, I, you know, I guess he couldn't bear to say the words goodbye, but she knows exactly what he's doing, yeah, and so she just says so long. He ends up like sleeping in the basement of the town church for a while, uh, and then
0: does he does he like fade out of the story at this point, or is
1: he gets a redeeming moment toward the end? Um, okay. And Stampede kind of works on him a little bit to kind of bring him back into the fold. But from there on out, it's the it's the relationship between Beloved and Denver and Setha, and how it ultimately becomes really parasitic, to the point where it's going so good for them for a period of time where they're like feeling like a little family unit that Seth, there's like this passage where Seth is like, Hey, maybe at this point, Seth is like, Oh, my ghost daughter's here. And she's like, totally okay with me. We're super happy now. (laughs) And this is what we could have had. This is what we could have had. And she's like, forgiven me for, for hurting her and killing her. So like, this is great. Uh, She kind of stops going to her job because she just wants to stay home with Beloved all day mm-hmm. and Beloved is putting on weight and eating more and taking more of their share. And it's evident by the end of the book that she is pregnant. Yeah. Um, re- remember what was going on with Paul D. Right. Uh, Full contact sports. Yep. And Denver has to basically save her mom by going out into the world and like working, which she's never done.
0: Well, that's going out into the world is a big deal for her in the first place.
1: And I, and I will say, I, it it wasn't until this section of the book that I had really internalized as a reader how imprisoned Denver was in, in a prison of a couple people's own making, in, mm-hmm. including Setha's. Like, the book doesn't dwell on that too often. It tosses out a little bit at top, and then every once in a while we'll mention it, but it isn't really until she steps out that that's Denver gets her own kind of section towards the end of the book where she's taking control of the story and that's where you, there are plenty of books that are focused on people who don't get to leave where they are you know room is an example which is just yeah. made well, into a film Well, I mean I um, think
0: I think that's that sort of thing happens enough to kind of be a trope is like the yeah the shut in the shut in recluse like rises above whatever it is that's that's kept them away from other people yes to to like join other people and that is a big moment of like character development for them and it's yeah I, it happens a lot in a lot of different stories
1: yeah uh so she ends up finding some help um from Mrs. Jones and from the Bodwins who I mentioned earlier right um who end up they're older now their uh housekeeper Janie could use some help so she's like Denver might take the night shifts kind of thing mm-hmm. and at this point it is it is very possible that like her mom will like die of just like starvation or, or illness or whatever because she's not doing so well and it builds to this climactic uh kind of community exorcism of beloved where all the women in town who've heard from Janie what's going on over there um come to get rid of her and so
0: so at this point like to not feel bad for beloved we sort of have to assume that she's a malevolent ghost or well, else like a really good shyster
1: yeah because at this point we've get we get like a whole chapter or two of um the like the inversion of the mother-daughter relationship between beloved and setha where like they've just been trapped in the house for weeks and Setha's like, degrading in both mind and body to, like, take care of and please Beloved. Right. And Beloved's just, like, treating her like garbage. Um, and when this climactic scene happens and, and it involves um, a hallucination on Setha's part that another white man is, is going to take her daughters, that Beloved disappears. And we don't know if she, like, what she was. Uh, the town has basically bought into the fact that she's a malevolent ghost who needs to get out to get sent away.
0: I think whatever, yeah, whatever you have to believe to like get her out of there. I, I just hearing your description. It sounds to me like she's somebody who learned just enough to know which buttons to press and like got herself set up good.
1: Now that is a, that is a, that is certainly a reading of the book. There is a a, so it was written in eighty seven, and I wasn't as I was reading it, I wasn't sure, but it takes this. Uh, like, postmodernist leap about three-quarters of the way through the book where you get these three chapters that are first-person stream-of-conscious monologues from Setha, Denver, and then Beloved. And Beloved's is, like, a, a, a linguistic complexity below the other two. Like, there's no punctuation. She's repeating herself a lot. It's like she's a baby ghost. She is, and, and they all kind of talk about even if she were a real person she's clearly stunted developmentally yeah yeah yeah. Um, And I've done a little reading since finishing the book that there is an interpretation of this character that she was uh, a girl who was imprisoned by her slave owner who uh, sexually assaulted her repeatedly and took advantage of her and then died and she had to escape on her own Um, and she was like kept in a room the whole time so thematically relevant to everything else that's going on, but yeah, kind because of you have wandering. a lot of like
0: you have a lot of different things about like freedom versus being shut in and like having f- having shut inness like imposed upon you versus choosing it for yourself, and
1: yeah, uh, yeah. and there's a third reading of her where she's like a personification of Setha's mother, who was hanged um and went through the middle passage it's 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 explained so ah i don't know i think that morrison doesn't want you to have to pick though i think morrison has purposely left the explanation a little w- a, a little more varied or yeah i think
0: you you can pick whatever you want it's it's weird cuz i i absolutely want to say oh this is this is some girl who is not like not necessarily malevolent but is definitely like manipulative
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and
0: knows how to manipulate setha into like getting what she needs slash wants. Yep. But also the book like clearly shows evidence of a real ghost doing ghost stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, and, and also is it just like, is it, is she an allegorical woman? Like what you're saying, who also happens to represent the, the power of our past to torment us, uh, and the, like the way in which we remember things, forcing us to to deal with them, you know. Yeah, right. Uh, right. So that I mean, that's the book. I'm surprised that I actually got to the end. I thought I was going to get a, a little more distracted <laughs>
0: than I did. No, I try. I tried to keep the distractions like on point this week, as you're, opposed to to normally. You're so helpful because I'm so helpful.
1: <laughs> uh, I do want to say that there there's another uh theme in the book that's not fully developed though it's very poignant um is wildness and uh this idea that bot like the argument that slavers were making is that So you people, know
0: it's a good one. You know it's a good one. and totally objective.
1: You know, going back to the the human versus animal characteristic thing is, you know, you were helping them by enslaving them. Cause clearly they didn't know any better. And they're, you know, like it's, Ugh. it's awful. Shut up. I know. I, can't, I, uh, they, at one point, Paul D tells the story about having a bit in his mouth. And this comes up because he wasn't able to talk to Hal after Hal saw the terrible thing that happened to Setha. Mm-hmm. Um, and Seth is like, well, why didn't you talk to him? Why didn't you like ask him what he saw and how he reacted to it? And he has to explain to her that he had a bit in his mouth and couldn't say anything. And the uh, she says that people I saw as a child who'd had the bit always looked wild after that. Whatever they used it on them for, it couldn't have worked because it put a wildness where before there wasn't any. So the idea that the very act of enslavement and the punishes of punishments of slavery, like, created the the pain that they assumed was already there, that mm-hmm. the slavers already assumed was already there. Uh, and that's echoed in a later passage, talking about this, this idea of the jungle, which has a lot of connotations. Uh-huh. Uh, white people believed that whatever the manners under every dark skin was a jungle but it wasn't the jungle blacks brought with them to this place from the other livable place it was the jungle white folks, white folks planted in them and it grew, it spread in through and after life it spread until it invaded the whites who made it touched them, everyone changed and altered them uh, so that's Morrison very artfully talking about slavery creating the slavers and creating the awful behavior. And you, you see this in a, in a, a lot of discussions of really morally reprehensible behavior as people attempt to justify it. It only allows them to do worse things. Right. Yeah. Um, I just, that wasn't necessary. There's a lot of other stuff going on in this book in terms of the character relationships and the mother daughter relationships and identity that I was always very impressed and struck by the passages where Morrison just like pulled back the curtain was like, this is what we're talking about. Let (laughs) let me just point a finger at this thing and say it with skill and passion. And it will hit you because while I've been showing you a bunch of scenes of terrible things, I haven't just like grabbed you by the shoulders and said, this is awful. Uh, So she doesn't do that. This is one of those times where she does that. And it's, it's pretty Im- impactful.
0: Okay, yeah, and that that sort of thing is can can be really it can feel really ham fisted and obvious when done incorrectly or like done poorly. Yes, is when when a when a creative work that is doing a pretty good job making its point and then it grabs you and shakes you and is like, "Hey, do you get it? <laughs> do you notice what I'm doing?"
1: Yeah, uh, it's oh, it's a it's a good book. I know we're not like. It's funny when some of our listeners talk about the show they like they're excited for our reviews of books. Yeah, they I, talk
0: about reviews which I, I think
1: is huh. I don't really think about our the books that we read that way. Uh, I just kind of want to report back from the experience of reading it, which is like slightly different from a review. Yeah,
0: every once in a while we get to the end and we sum it up and we're like, "I liked it. I hope you have as much fun reading this book as I had reading it." I don't Yeah, I wouldn't eight books out of 10. <laughs>
1: I wouldn't say like this is a fun book. I wouldn't, yeah, yeah. you know, it's certainly not that. I, w- the characters, w- woof, are extremely well realized. Um well, and
0: they sound like they can be frustrating, even as they are well realized.
1: Yes, certainly. Oh, certainly. Yeah. And there's a lot of really succinct storytelling happening while also kind of fleshing out uh, it. She dives in and out of the heads of these characters very well and very, very skillfully. Okay. There's been enough scholarship on this book that I've, this is certainly one I want to kind of read up on even more after this episode goes up and, and people should feel free to share what they've heard about the book or what they've, so I know there was yeah, that, like, like a those... movie that people have feelings about. I don't really know.
0: <laughs> this is one of those books where I really want to get like I think after we read um whatever that Cormac McCarthy one was that I yeah. read Blood Meridian, we got a lot of impassioned emails about like what the book was and what it meant to them and so I really I hope that we see a lot of the same things in response to this one. If you want to send us one of those emails, you can do it at overduepod@gmail.com. At uh, you can also send us shorter messages on Twitter at twitter.com slash overdue pod and you can post on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash overdue pod. We really like hearing from all of you through all of those uh, methods and we we just whether it's critical or not like we just I like, I like seeing those tweets and responding to them and, and interacting with you guys because it's almost always like a lot of fun.
1: Yeah and usually this is the time where I would share a list of people who've done that but I've realized earlier today that I put that list in February's bonus episode. you did a super
0: bad job. I noticed while
1: you were doing it, but I didn't want (laughs) to... So all the folks who have... uh, If you're listening week to week, which not everyone does, which is totally cool, but if you are... Uh, wait for February's bonus episode. Yeah, and then we'll thank you for you'll interacting get your, with you'll us get your like shout a month out. ago. In <laughs> the meantime, um, feel free to tweet Andrew pictures of chairs. Use the hashtag a chair for my Andrew. Uh, you could also go <laughs> to overduepodcast.com, uh, where we have more info about the show. We have a bunch of episodes recommended for new listeners. We have links to our iTunes and RSS feeds. If you do subscribe via iTunes, well, a subscribe. B, leave a rating. If you subscribe, yeah. please subscribe. <laughs> subscribe. Uh, leave a rating or review. It helps more people find the show, which is super important. And Andrew and I love reading what you guys have to say. You can also find a link to our Patreon page. Now, we do have a bunch of different ways to support the show, including like all the things we just mentioned, including telling your friends. But if you want to get your hands a little dirty, you want to stick your finger in some pies, you can head on <laughs> over to patreon.com slash and uh, make a monthly contribution to the show, which helps will certainly help grow the show in 2016 as it did in 2015. Mm-hmm. We've also got links to our podcast network HeadGum. Uh, we're excited to have uh, Jake from Jake and Amir on an upcoming episode. Uh, that was I really think next fun. week's episode. Next week. Actually,
0: woo! I mean, I feel bad that I keep putting it off, like the Stephen King book It, which is what I'm reading. But uh, yeah, we recorded an episode with Jake Hurwitz a couple of weeks ago, and it was a lot of fun. And that'll be what goes up next Monday uh while Craig and I are doing his bachelor party. Woo woo, woo! we'll report back on that
1: yeah. after it happens. <laughs> uh and if you want, you can also check out uh our podcast host Spreaker, who generally hosts the show. They've got a bunch of other shows on their network as well. Uh Andrew, you're still reading about clowns and we're gonna talk about still... Robinson Crusoe next week, right? Yep.
0: That's the deal. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, please do email us and, and hit us on Facebook with your thoughts about this book. I'm really looking forward to hearing them. And uh, until next Monday, try to be happy. That was a headgum podcast.